And I'm going to start with a story like we like to do. It was once a, a man who in the middle of the street, in front of hundreds of people watching, committed murder. He literally killed a guy. And there's a hundred witnesses. And uh, he's going to be put on trial. And it was obvious that he's going to be convicted. And the question was, who's going to take on the case? Which defense lawyer will get up and try to, you know, to, de- to defend this guy? And this one big guy, this big shot in the country, said, I'm going to take it on. I'm going to defend... <laughs> I'm going to defend this guy. And everybody thought, you're nuts. There's literally, everybody saw him. And, uh, but everyone's looking forward to the date to see what's going to happen. So they come to court. Everybody's there. Prosecution gets up, makes their case. Look, we have witnesses lined up out the door that can testify against the defendant that he actually picked up the gun and killed the man. And they do their thing. The judge nods to him and has now the defendant's lawyer get up and everyone's waiting to see what's going to happen. The defendant's lawyer gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, your honor, I know everybody thinks that my client is the murderer, but in fact, in 10 seconds from now, the real murderer is going to walk through the door. The entire room turns their heads to the door and everybody's murmuring like, what's going to go? It's going to be 10 seconds go by, 20 seconds go by. And now the murmur turns into a buzz. Everybody's talking and nothing's happening. And after a minute, the judge looks back at the lawyer and says, what's going on? And the guy says, look, all I need is reasonable doubt. And everybody looked to the door thinking that the guy is going to come. That's reasonable doubt enough right there. I think that my client is innocent. It's a great story right there. But there's an ending. The jury goes in to deliberate. They come out five minutes later with a verdict. Guilty. Now the lawyer goes, one second. We just gave some reasonable doubt. How do you make my client guilty? And one man in the jury stood up and said one of the most powerful lines. He said, yeah, everybody turned their head towards the door besides your defendant. The entire time, he never turned towards the door because he knew that nobody's coming in to save the day. It was him who committed the act. And the reason that I'm saying this story particularly as we open up this chapter is not for the negative side of it, but for the positive side of it. In the end, (laughs) well, that's that's one lesson. (laughs) In the end, If we know it inside, we can never lose touch with it. So the murderer on the negative side knew he was guilty. He could never bring himself to look to the door. But anything we know about what's going on on our inside, we'll also never be able to lose touch with. And last week, when we started chapter 18, which is really the second third of the Tanya, chapters 1 to 17 stand as a unit, 
and chapter 18 opens up a new conversation. What we really started to do is we started a journey to the Jewish inside. The goal is to figure out the inner access point that we have to maintain and achieve the Benoni status. Benoni is the man who is both uninspired but uncompromised. He doesn't have that consistent feeling of being in love with Hashem, but yet he never on the practical, never will compromise. And we learned that some Benonis are Benonis out of habit, some are Benonis from work. But those are both intense cases because most people are not boring and most people don't put in the work to the extent. The classic Benoni is going to be the one who engages his Jewish inside, who accesses the point within him from which we have a Lagba Omer bonfire there. It's from which he'll be able to live the life of a Benoni, if only for windows of time. And we began, because of this, we began to explore what is the Jewish inside. Till now, we've talked about the godly soul, the animal soul, the part of us that wants to be with God, the part of us that wants to be with self. And now we have to open that up. We have to unpack it so that we can use it practically. The more connected we become, the more connected we become to that point, the more engaged we are with it, the more it's the center of our focus, the more we'll be able to rely on it when we need it. And the name we gave for this in, uh, in last week's chapter was the Chachma of our soul. Chachma is the Kabbalistic word for humility. The innate humility, the fact that there is a part within our soul that always has a space for God. The what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's in this context, I'm uh, using Chachma as bitul, which is like the humility or self-abnegation. And th- th- that's the Kabbalistic term. The Tanya's term for this is called Ahava Misutera, the hidden love. The hidden love is a word that repeatedly comes up from chapters 18 to 25 because it's that hidden love that every Jew wants to access. It's the core of the Jew. It's the part of us that was born on top of the mountain. This is what we have all in common. This is what we have all in common. <laughs> Everything under control. Who's the arsonist in the Huh? No, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Right, Israel. But, uh, it's the core of the Jew. It's the part of us that was born on top of the mountain, never steps down. It's the part of us that always stays there. And it's the part of us that inherently believes. The inherent faith that every Jew has, that when push comes to shove, when it's triggered, he'll make the right choice. When it's, a, when it's the difference between life and the relationship with God, we choose the relationship with God. It's that point we're relying on. The hidden love is the root of our faith and it's the root of our martyrdom, which has been the trademark of Judaism throughout the centuries. And so from that perspective, the Alter Rebbe said last week that knowing that you have a soul 
makes you special. But it's also a responsibility. It's not a specialty where we pat ourselves on the back. But it's a specialty where we say, now what are we going to do with it? There's a certain man that I knew, Holocaust survivor, used to say, everybody talks about being the chosen people. But nobody asks, chosen for what? Everybody uses the line, chosen people, as our ticket to whatever it is. Instead of understanding that it's chosen for something. And when you're chosen for something, you got to know what that something is, get in touch with it, and so that you can, you can fulfill it. And so we each have this part of us inside. It's been handed down from Avraham Avinu. Since our forefather Avraham, every father has passed on to his son or daughter that part, that chokhmah of the soul, that ahava misuterah, that hidden love, that core of Judaism. And if we can only access it, it can catapult us to that place where we want to be in control of the one thing that we can control, which is ourselves. Chapter 19, which is what we're going to discuss tonight, is basically a similar conversation with different form. So the Alter Rebbe kind of repeats himself, which is very unusual. And I imagine it's because it's so integral. He uses a different uh, context to bring across the same message. And it starts with a verse in Mishlei, in Proverbs from King Solomon, the wisest of all men. He said, he said, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. The candle of God is the soul of man. Or the soul of man is God's candle. And over the generations, many interpretations have been offered on this verse. What does it mean that the soul of man is God's candle? You know, Rashi, the simple meaning of the text, he, he, says, uh, he says the soul is the candle that God uses to make an inspection of us at the end of life. In other words, the soul is the illuminating factor that uh, by its light will determine how we did. Human body is darkness, it's physicality, it's coarse. And Hashem takes hold of the soul and says, let's light up the room and let's see how this life went. Kind of a downer verse. There's another Jewish sage, Ralbag, Gersonides. He said the opposite. He said, The soul of man is your God given candle to discover the truth of life. The world's a dark place, full of challenges, misconceptions. Always two ways to look at everything, unclarity, dichotomy, contradiction, and all these things. And Hashem gives each of us a candle, a soul, an innate moral code that helps us navigate the trials, the tribulations, the confusion of our life and to make sense of it. But the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, a new interpretation of this verse. The reason why King Solomon chose to describe the soul as a candle 
is because a candle and really fire is unique from all of creation. It has something that puts it aside from everything else in the world and it's that characteristic that lies at the core of a soul. And he says, what do we know about fire? Launches into a conversation about fire. They were showing us. Uh, and this is probably, I'm thinking now, this is probably what? Show and tell. It's show and tell, exactly. We've talked about this in the past, how the center of every being in this world is itself. The very definition of being something that's created means that your identity begins with yourself and then from that point you can engage anything else. Relationship with self first, relationship with anything else outside of it second. I had a teacher who used to love telling the story about uh, a Hasidic gathering that changed his life. You know, typically in yeshiva, uh, the boys, they have a teacher, a Hasidic mentor, and uh, he'll do a farbrengen with them a gathering that'll typically be formal. It'll be celebrating a certain Hasidic holiday or it'll be on a Shabbos and uh, they'll have this kind of a formal air to them. But sometimes, and I remember this in Yeshiva, my own experience, we could go to the mentor's house. You know, we go there for a Shabbos meal or just on a Thursday night and it's more intimate, it's more impromptu and uh, it's always more valuable. I always found that it was more, you know, the real stuff happened there. And uh, he had the same thing, this teacher of mine, he had his teacher, who they went to his house once on a Thursday night, and uh, they just popped in. And he knew to expect them, so even though he was a young father with some kids, and wasn't sleeping much at night anyways, but he took them in, he set up the table, they started sitting, and, uh, and for bringing. And they're talking, and it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, all of a sudden they hear crying from the bedroom six-month-old baby is waking up in the middle of the night so he's a father he, he leaves says guys I'm coming back in a minute and uh, runs upstairs gets the baby comes down now the baby is part of the Fabringen too he's there and uh, they continue talking and so at one point he holds up the baby and he goes uh, what do you think of this baby and, you know, young boys, like, you always want to say the right thing, you know? Like, so you're not... Like, where's he going with this? And uh, so they're just looking at him. And he prods them on. He goes, he's beautiful, isn't he? And as soon as he said that, now we know where we're going. So they started gushing. Yeah, he's wonderful. Look at him. He looks so cute. He looks just like you. The eyes match. Da-da-da-da-da. How old is he? This and that. And now he had them in his trap. And he's, he holds up the baby, he says, this baby can be summarized in one word. He used the Yiddish word, ich, which means I. This baby is me. That's all it knows. It can't communicate. It can't talk. It can't walk. It can't relate with anybody else. The entire reality right now is itself. He wants to sleep, he cries, he wants to eat, he cries, he wants to be taken up, picked up, he cries. He has no concept that there could be anything outside of him. And slowly he'll grow up and he'll get educated and he'll come to see that there's other things. But for the first 
while. He's just an eye. And he used that as a metaphor to explain how sometimes you can get so caught up in yourself that uh, you, lose com- you, lose, you lose sensitivity, you lose touch to the fact that there's other things around you. And it was a very powerful moment. But in that way, that really is the truth and the core of every created being. It's self. Identity is self. Self-gratification, self-preservation. And then we can chase other things and we can pursue other avenues of understanding the world and relating to outside of ourselves. But it begins with me. And any time, typically, any time we seem to shed our identity or something about our identity, it's typically just changing something smaller for something bigger. So we're going to quit this because that way we can have more peace of mind. Okay, now peace of mind became your identity. I'm going to do this so I can save the business or the family or another opportunity. We'll, we'll, we'll change, we'll, we'll metamorphose in different ways, but it'll always be a continuation of the self. There's never a point of losing identity for the sake of losing identity or for a completely higher purpose, typically. It's not the Jewish way, we're going to see in a minute. But as, as a theme in the world, that's how things go. Fire, as a physical creation, is unique in that way that it's consistently flickering consistently moving and Kabbalistically it's consistently aspiring to lose itself the Kabbalistic meaning of why fire sways that much and is always flickering it's not just because it's biologically gas you know the whole business and the combustion it has to do with the fact that fire is aspiring to lose its sense of self And the Alter Rebbe, he kind of engages in a conversation with the fire. He says, and you tell the fire, look, if you leave the wick, if you leave the wick, you're not going to be able to emit light. You're not going to be able to give warmth. In fact, you won't even be there anymore. The flame will be gone. Fire says, I don't care. I want to go up. And the Kabbalistic model described in Rambam is that there's a, the elemental fire that's in the sublunar sphere. It's, these are all concepts that uh, have deep esoteric meaning. But basically the idea that under the moon there's an elemental fire. Not fire as we know it, but a, a gas type of a thing that attracts all fire to it. And what that means is there's an essence of godly energy that's potent and... That's why it's by the moon, because Jews are very much moon-connected. And uh, it has an energy which attracts the fire to it. But the idea is that fire is unique from everything else in that it's always going up versus everything else that's going down. And up and down means self or transcendence. And the Alter Rebbe takes the position that the reason that King Solomon called the soul a candle is because that's what lies at the core of the soul. As one Hasidic teacher of old, he used to say, the ultimate eye of the neshama is eyeless. The ultimate self of the neshama is non-self. 
the core of what the soul seeks to strive to, is to lose its identity. It doesn't want to be stuck and confined in physicality, in, uh, in the vicissitudes of life. It wants to soar. It wants to access truth. It wants to access Hashem. And then the Alter Rebbe repeats the conversation. You tell the Neshama. But if you're going to leave, if you leave this physical vessel, you're going to lose your identity. You'll become like the ray of a sun in the sun. It has no self there. You're going to go back to being a part of God. And the Neshama says, that's what I want. At the cost of my own identity, I want to be part of transcendence. The Alter Rebbe uses the language, it's, it's desire by nature. Naturally, the Neshama wants to be in this state. It's, so to speak, forced to be in the body. Hashem puts it there so that it can have the experience of being a human, but really, it always wants to go back. And if that's the core of our soul, says the Alter Rebbe, that's the core of being a Jew. Not to be, but to be not. Every being has to ask itself, do I want to be or I want to be not? Every being says, I want to be. And the Neshama says, I don't want to be, I want to be not. Godliness is embedded inside of it to the point that this is its natural state, its natural state of being. You know, we've said this joke, it's a great joke before, but uh, four big revolutions in the last century, right? Psychologically, Freud. Politically, Marx. Scientifically, Einstein. And geologically, Darwin. Three of them were Jewish, Darwin was wrong. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> this... <laughs> uh, but Jews were always historically revolutionaries we were never content with the status quo never from the beginning of our people there was always somebody somewhere Karach that's the, that's the negative guy every Jewish leader, and really every Jew. Look at what's happening now. Jews are being woken up around the world. Nobody's content with what's going on in Israel. Nobody's content. Everybody wants to make a move. We should hope so, right? Hope so. Maybe the end of the class will explain that, but... but uh, that, that, Jews just wanted to make a difference. And it's pretty crazy how much noise we make. You know, people think, like, you know, such a small country, how much percent uh, of population are we? And people actually think we're like 20%. You know, like, it's unbelievable. We're not even a quarter of a percent. And yet, and yet the amount of noise that we make, the amount of peace prizes that we've won, the amount of contributions that we've made, and it's unbelievable. And the Rebbe once said, it has to do with this chapter of Tanya. 
the reason why a Jew is never happy. Maybe it's the reason for like the inner Jewish guilt. You know, I don't know. It's like, the reason is because there's a godly fire that's burning inside us that says, you can't be content. It's pushing us to metamorphosis. It's, it's, it, it wants to be a catalyst for change. It just says, it, it's, it's uh, in Yiddish is a great word, egberin. Egberin is like, um, I guess perturb is a good word, but like it, 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 it keeps you on your toes, you know? It's like it never leaves you alone. It's the, light. Always, it's the light. Yeah, it's the light, exactly, exactly. Egberin, egberin, egberin. It's like, uh, maybe a good English would be like, it's egging you on. Like I think it, it's like, it, it, it's, it's keeping you on spilkes. Yeah, it's keeping you on your toes. It's never letting you rest. Jews have to always be productive. You know, like we gotta, you did this. You can't Yiddish to explain Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's a good one. <laughs> well said. But that, this, this is, and it has to do with this. Because the inner self of a Jew is a fire. And when a fire is raging, there's no room for complacency. And so Jews historically are not complacent and it's why we're here. The answer to the question of Jewish survival is because we weren't complacent. We kept true to the Torah and its mitzvahs and its values and we never let go. This is a whole discussion. In other words, we, I, I love this topic. The core of the Jew. The root of the Jew. But, uh, but yeah, that's the common thread. The common thread are our battles. Yes, we have battles. But the push to make a difference. The push to be not. The push to have to leave a mark in some form, some way, that it wasn't just about me, but I made a difference. And the sad reality, though, and this is where the second part of the chapter comes into play, is that we get the choice as to what we do with it. The fire is burning inside each of us. The soul is there. The core of the soul and the fire we weigh is there. But it's in our hands as to what we can do with it. Of course, we can make the right choices with it and use it to fire up opportunities for good. And then there's the other side. The Alter Rebbe spends considerable time on this other side and he says, we're going to classify the other side in two ways. Two Hebrew words. Galut, exile, and Shina, sleep. He says, typically, a Jew who has used his fire for the other side has either put his fire into exile, Galut, or he's put the fire to sleep. The difference between exile and sleep, of course, if we can just examine the, 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 the literal words, is that exile would be a distortion of reality. The literal form of exile was used in ancient times to displace people, to ruin their center. Any big king who wanted to take over big swaths of land, the first thing he would do would move around the people. 
you conquer a territory, you move them out. Because now they don't have this homeland feeling of, of comfort. Sancheirev was famous for that. He did that to the, a lot of the world. Because it, uh, it disorients a person. And in the same way, one could cause galut to his own fire. And the way the Alter Rebbe translates that is, you can harness the godly power within you for the wrong things. That's why the Jews were at the head of all movements. We're at the helm of the good movements, and we're at the helm of the bad movements. It's always, it's, in the end, it's always us. And uh, it's exactly because of that. We know it. We know it. We, we, we've been at both ends of the spectrum. Because that Jew, the fire was burning within him, and he just took it on the wrong track. You know, the, uh, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, was uh, in the 1920s, worked tremendously on Jewish activism in the communist underground. Communists didn't allow Jewish activity, and so he began this network, clandestine operations, where entire schools were being run underground, and, and uh, he had hundreds of emissaries all over the place, and it was a huge thing. And he was considered counter-revolutionary, and he was arrested in 1927. First given a death sentence, and then it was ultimately changed to just a couple of years of, of forced labor, and then, we, and then he was liberated. It was a huge Hasidic holiday in the summer that we have on the 12th of Tammuz to celebrate that. But uh, on the first night of his arrest, actually coming up now, in about 10 days, the night of his arrest, he writes that uh, the communist agents came in, barged down his door while he was eating dinner with his family, and unfortunately, at the head was two Jews. <laughs> Lulav and Nachmanson were their last names and they, they, uh, they came in and they conducted a search of the house and, and they were the ones that ultimately arrested the Rebbe himself and on his way out of the house he was allowed to take a little bag with a couple of things in it his talis and tefillin a couple of holy books it was, all, it was confiscated from him later and there was a whole story around that but on the way down he's carrying this bag and Lulav whose grandfather was a chassid his grandfather was a Lubavitch Hasidic Jew, a follower of the Friedrich Rebbe, the priest of his grandfather, the fourth Rebbe of Chabad. He was a follower of his. And Lulav turns to the previous Rebbe on the way out. He says, my grandfather carried the bags for your grandfather. Let me carry your bags. <laughs> Grabs the bag from the, the previous Rebbe. The previous Rebbe had a, a magical way with words. He said, no, 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 no. Your grandfather carried my grandfather's bags where he wanted to go. You want to carry my bags where you want to go. Give it back. Huh. Wow. And he took, he took back the bags. But uh, this is the story. Some people choose to carry their bags where they want to go. And because we're Jews, and because we have that power... We're gifted with it. If we're born into the Jewish family, we have this part of our soul. And we can harness it to the negativity. Each of us harnesses it in maybe lighter ways. 
but the idea is that it's our choice. And to do that is to put the fire into Galut, into exile. I, I just found, sorry, interjected Antic, because he said, I just found out two days ago that my great-great-grandfather was the Rosh Hashiva in Bialystok in Russia. Wow. So Your great-great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather. You're a Hossett. You have a calling. I, I thought I was <laughs> You're 116 for the Tony. 116. The lines are coming out tonight. It's all or nothing. That's one option. Put it into exile. Distort it. Distort its vision. Put it in the wrong place. There's another option. Sleep. Sleep just means it's not conscious. When a person sleeps, he's a person with all of his faculties. Everything about you is still you when you sleep. The difference is you're not conscious. Of course, not in a way of unconscious in that sense, but the idea that it's dormant. The person can't get expressed when he's asleep. He's just asleep. But the difference between somebody that's asleep and somebody that's in exile is that somebody that's in exile has already entered a different reality. Somebody that's asleep just has to be woken up. And the Alter Rebbe says, some Jews put their fire in exile, some Jews put their fire to sleep. They say, look, Take a break, okay? We're going to do a couple of things now. You just be quiet. And you can desensitize your soul to the point that it actually does fall asleep. But, and this is the crucial but, you can never kill it. Maximum is you can put it to sleep. The Alter Rebbe even says, the Russia who put his fire into exile too has a part of the fire that stayed asleep and didn't go anywhere. So not only can't you kill your, your divine spark, you can't even fully distort its reality. Thank you. Because there's always a part. And this is what we called last week the Chachma, the, the core that maximum falls asleep. The worst Jew has a space inside of him that never went into exile. And uh, all that has to happen is to wake it up. And the method of waking up depends on the person. I mean, look at physical sleep. Everybody knows, right? We know what wakes us up. Some people, you just got to walk into their room and they're waking up already. Some people, uh, they're deeper sleepers, so you turn on the light and then they, they go, what are you doing? Some people, you need to shout at them, right? And then some people, you got you to gotta take the bucket of water, right, and, and pour it on them. When we were in Yeshiva, our dorm counselors knew their guys, like this guy I need the bat for to wake him up. <laughs> you know, that guy needs the, the water. This is... Uh, The common denominator is that a sleeping person needs to be woken up. The question just is how? What's the, what's, what's the tool you're gonna use? What's the, yeah, what's the level to which 
you have to engage it to wake him up. But once you find that, once you find the, 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 the method, the wake-up method, from there, it's just a question of using it. It's just a question of doing it. So if you know this guy needs a shout and you want to wake up his fire, so for him, it's a shout. For the other guy, maybe it's less. But he could also fall asleep and he also needs to be woken up. But there is a fire that's always going to be able to be woken up. And the wake-up call typically is the same one we described last week. He describes it again in chapter 19 is the Nisayon, the test of emuna of faith in God. When it comes down to it and the Jew is offered the choice tear away from God and live or stay and die he chooses to stay and die. Because when you get to the point where you touch his Jewishness and he knows it, so long as he doesn't know it, so long as he thinks, well, if I compromise on this, I'm still Jewish, there he'll compromise. But wherever for him your, your red line might be, that if somebody touched that, now you're touching my Judaism, they won't compromise there. That's when you've woken up the fire. wonderful story It's a friend of mine who's uh, actually my second cousin too and he had a grandfather whose name, will, name is Velvel Green I think I mentioned a story about him in the past the mm -hmm. hot dog stand mm -hmm. that was yeah. same, same guy same guy same guy different story this is a man who was a professor in, uh, in the highest level of intellectual stuff mathematics and uh, it was completely foreign to Judaism and he was engaged by the Shliach in Minnesota and uh, ultimately got very close to the Rebbe and, and was merited many, many personal responses from the Rebbe. And he wrote a book where he, he's a very humorous guy. He puts all his stories down in, in, uh, in great ways. So he writes this story where uh, this is probably the late 60s. And he got into one of these conversations, these inevitable conversations about Jewish, the Jewish position, the Torah position on scientific evidence as it relates to the age of the universe and uh, evolution. And there's a famous 1962 letter from the Rebbe where he addressed this point at length. I don't know what the context was. Somebody had written him a question. He wrote a long letter, uh, very much, very clarifying, on, on, very enlightening on these topics. And so as soon as the Shliach got into this conversation, he said, oh, I have a letter to show you. And uh, he brings in this letter from, from 62, gives it to the professor, thinking like, yeah, I got it now, you know, this, the Rebbe solves all the issues, gives him the letter. And he says, he said, I read the letter, and I felt that it was still wanting. It didn't clarify a lot of points that I had, I had questions on. And I decided to write to the Rebbe, not in a disrespectful way, but like, uh, this is cheap stuff. Not, not, not PhD level. You know, I need more. And he wrote this whole litany of questions and sent it into the Rebbe. And uncharacteristically of the Rebbe at the time, where the Rebbe had answered him letters before and continued to do so after, this particular letter never got an answer. He waited a week, two weeks, and he's wondering what's going on. And uh, the Shliach 
contacted the Rebbe's secretary to see, you know, it's very important. This guy is questioning the Rebbe's letter. We need some, we need some backup here. And why is the Rebbe not answering? He says, you know, the, the letter is there. It's sitting on the Rebbe's desk and he's not addressing it. And uh, it never got answered. But he continued developing his relationship, getting closer to Judaism. And now it's about a year later. It's about a year later. And he's much more involved in Yiddishkeit. He's become a lot more observant. And he had an opportunity to go to New York and get a private audience with the Rebbe. And he comes into the Rebbe's room and they got to talking. And he asked the Rebbe, how come you didn't answer that letter? Or maybe I'm confusing it and the Rebbe did it first. The Rebbe opened up his drawer, took out the letter, and uh, addressed all the questions. Answered all the questions. And then he asked, how come you didn't answer at the time? I sent this letter to you a year ago. You could have answered me a year ago. How come you didn't do it? And the Rebbe said, it's not my job to win arguments. It's my job to win adherence to Judaism. It's my job to win adherence to Judaism. And I did my job. Now you have questions, we can talk about it, no problem, we'll answer the questions. Had I answered it then, it would just be a game of the argument and the goal wouldn't be accomplished. It's not my job to win arguments, it's my job to win adherence to Judaism. And... uh, why did I say this story? Because it's, it's complicated. The Jewish life is complicated. And if we lose sight of the goal, it's very easy to get carried away in polemics and debate. And, uh, and you never wake up the Jew. See, Jews are very clever in that way. When they see that they're about to, about to be woken up, they have this way of sneaking into the debate, they get Talmudic, and uh, before you know it, you're in a different conversation and the opportunity, it, it goes by. But to really stick at it and to wake up a Jew, you have to be persistent. And every Jew has it. Every Jew has that, uh, that thread. Some Jews will put it into galut, will put it into exile. The Alter Rebbe uses the expression you put it into the sack, the sack of klipa. Why is it called a sack? He says, because unlike clothing, which although they also limit us in some way, but they actually allow us to express ourselves through them. When a person wears the right clothing, more of his character shines. When you trap him in a sack, in a bag, he loses that opportunity of freedom of expression. That sounds like people purposely put themselves in that situation. No, I don't think they do. What happens is you compromise once, you compromise a second time, and before you know it, you're losing sensitivity. And your, your soul ends up in, in a sack. So you didn't tie it up there, but uh, it goes there. It, 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 it ends up, oh, thank you. It ends up there. But as soon as 
you get to the point where godliness is not a philosophy, where atheism is not an option, and the truth is there, and the choice has to be made, the Jew will go there. And the Alter Rebbe's message, because this is a nice conversation, and we can now go home and say, great, we have a fire. The message that the Alter Rebbe says, it's the same as last week. He says, why wait? You have the soul. The fire is in you. It's your greatest gift and your greatest liability. It's your greatest gift because you're born with it, but it's your greatest liability because you can take it for granted. Anything we don't work for, we take for granted. It says your soul's there, your fire's there. Why should you wait to have to be pushed against the wall with a gun to wake up when you can use the meditation to wake yourself up? And there's a commentary, not in the Tanya, but on the Tanya, where it talks about if it's hard for you to self-meditate, use another Jew. Everybody can see the beauty in another Jew. Sometimes we're our own harshest critics. That everybody can see, no matter what he does, he's got something good. He's got a Jewish beauty. If it's there for him, let it be there for you. Open up access to your own access point because you have it. And when you do that, you open the opportunity to reveal the hidden love. And I want to conclude with a very powerful story that happened in January of 1950. January of 1950, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe passed away, the 10th of Shvat. It was a Shabbos morning, and so we don't bury on Shabbos. The Levaya was the next day, Sunday. And the Rebbe was very particular about the instructions, what should be done with the previous Rebbe's body, the exact purification ritual, who should handle it, and one instruction that the Rebbe gave was that during the funeral, there were going to be tens of thousands. This is, you can see the pictures and videos. There was all of Jewry, of New York Jewry, came out to this Leviah. And uh, the Rebbe said, nobody that was not in the mikvah should touch the coffin. The Yiddish expression is in Vaser, if you were in the water. If you want to even touch, forget carry, if you want to touch the Arona Kodesh, the, the holy coffin of the previous Rebbe, you had to have been in the mikvah that day. And he said, be very particular about it. And he himself, the Rebbe himself, was going to be there in the area of the coffin. Wait, which Rebbe says the previous Rebbe? Or the... the Rebbe said it himself about, about no, the previous Rebbe. Oh, about his father. That's right. It, w- it would be another year until he officially accepted. And, uh, well, Hasidim get a command from the Rebbe and they're following it. So... You can see on the video, it was, it was very, it was jam-packed. They, they carried out the coffin, and uh, it was work. Anybody that wanted to get close, Mr. Given in Vasser, were you in the water? If you were in the water, you can touch it. No water, leave. And there was this one man who approached the coffin. 
and uh, they could see he wasn't the most religious man. And one of the Hasidim turns to him and says, this given in Basar, were you in the water today? Pulls up his sleeve. He says, points to his tattooed number. He says, I wasn't in the water, but I was in the fire. And the Rebbe, who was standing there, said, Lazim gain. said, let him go. Let him go. Wasn't in the water, but he was in the fire. And I think there's a deeper message to the story. Besides for the profound idea that that story communicates as a general theme. But I also like to think that the fire that the Rebbe was referring to was the fire of the soul. He says, a Jew could recognize that I was in the fire. That means he's in touch with the fire inside him. Look at him. Not a religious man. Practically not connected. But when it comes down to it, he knows where to go. He knows where his essence is. He knows where his fire is. And he says, let me get close to it. Because in the end of the day, every Jew wants transcendence. Chaim. 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 Chaim.